Hey there. We're getting close to November 3rd. That's election day here in the United States. As the headlines flood the airwaves and your inbox, we're inviting you to check in with us as we break down just how this election affects you. Whether you're in Delhi or Durban, here in North America or the UK. We're going to hear from a diverse group of voters who could help determine the next U.S. president. My name is Melody Bowers. Hi, my name is Omar Mubayad. My name is Dina. My name is Chanel Haley. And my name is Malika Bilal. And this is The Take. Today, you'll hear from different groups of the American electorate, Muslim Americans, members of the LGBTQ community, and evangelicals. Though they represent different percentages of the electorate, they each could be a deciding factor in this year's election. The election results will change this country significantly. This is my opportunity to voice my opinion. This election for me is definitely around the economy, as well as access to health care. We'll hear more from them later. We'll also hear from the president of GLAAD, an LGBTQ organization who tells us about an often overlooked group of voters and a prominent member of the evangelical church with close ties to the White House who tells us about his support of President Trump. But first, we talk to a Muslim political organizer who says his community of voters could make all the difference. We're only 1% of the vote, but the placement of that 1% is in what many would call battleground states. And that's what really makes the value of the Muslim vote so valuable. That's Mohammed Gullah. He's the national director for an organization called Engage, which promotes voting within the Muslim American community. When we're talking about how engaged the Muslim community is and really getting ready for November 3rd, the way that we've treated, you know, these past, I'd say, 40 days is that every day is election day. Some elections can be decided by a small margin of votes. So when we look at, for example, what happened in 2016, we realized that in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, uh, the election was decided by about 77,000 votes total in those three states. And when we look at the population density of Muslim Americans in those three states, we do have the ability to swing elections in those states if we just turn out. In battleground states, candidates might seek out the Muslim vote. But Muhammad explained what he says is the greater value of the community. Candidates should care about Muslim voters not only because of our population size, but also because we are an important fabric of the American identity. We are not only doctors and lawyers, we're also engineers, we're also small business owners. Our diversity isn't just in our ethnicity or in our race, but also in our ideology and personality and what we work towards. Nationwide, a record number of Muslims ran for office in 2018. A year later, over 80 Muslims ran for state and local offices across the country, and 39 won. 
The increase of political action from Muslims in America is growing too fast to be ignored. And there's a reason why. What we're seeing today, in today's environment, we are seeing that Muslim Americans are more engaged than ever. They're owning their American identities. They're owning their rights, not only to vote, but to also speak up, to share their stories. The same way that, that you know, we mentioned the diversity of, of Muslim Americans in the workforce or in our communities. I think before what a lot of our uh, parents and our generations before us, what they were really focused on was surviving and, and being able to provide a stable life or a better life for, for future generations. And I think this new generation, as we look at what we see today, our focus is not only to survive, but to thrive and to redefine what it means to be a Muslim in America and own it, own our story and move beyond that. And what we're seeing is a sense of pride of not only being Muslim, but also being an American and what that looks like. The Pew Research Center said in 2018 that 13% of Muslims identify as Republican or lean towards the party, meaning the majority are Democrats or from another party. Mohammed tells us what he's been hearing from Muslim voters and their motivation to vote. So I think that there are so many policies that has criminalized the Muslim community, whether it be the immigrant Muslim community or even the African-American Muslim community. And and I think that enough was enough. I think 2016 really pushed a lot of the Muslim community to really take a step forward and, 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 and just take that risk and put themselves out there and kind of redefine what it means to be a Muslim American. I would say that because we are the most diverse faith-based community in the nation, there's not one or two policies that really stick out. Uh, the Muslim American community cares about education. They care about health care. They care about, they yes, they do care about foreign policy. But when you ask the average Muslim American, those are the types of issues that they really, that really pops out, as well as criminal justice reform. According to Engage, currently there are over a million Muslims registered to vote. And not everyone is going into the voting booth with one mindset. We talked to some of them about their thoughts during an electoral year full of challenges. My name is Dina. I am 24 years old. I am working in tech in the Bay Area. That's Dina Benayat Sharif, a Muslim American in California. I firmly believe Trump and Biden are not our only options. You know, the fight is not over after November 3rd, regardless of who wins. And even though I do not see any candidate who reflects all my values and the policies I want, I will vote for the candidate who will most likely listen and be pressured by the demands of the working class. And in that case, I'm voting for Joe Biden. Hi, my name is Omar Mubayad. I live in the state of Florida. I am Lebanese Cuban American. Both my parents and their respective families left their home countries to seek a better future and more opportunities here in the United States. Omar is voting for the candidate that might help him with his student loans. I'm a school teacher. I'm also a part-time law student. And right now, I don't see the sitting president making any kind of changes 
that would make my life easier post-graduation and transition into a law career. Whereas Joe Biden might work on forgiving the enormous amount of student debt that we have, not just my own, but uh, those of others in my same position. And we followed up with Muhammad to find out who he will be voting for. Not only will I be voting for Joe Biden, I am knocking doors for Joe Biden. I am sending out text messages for Joe Biden. I am promoting Joe Biden. Now, what that means also is that after Election Day, I will also make sure to hold his administration accountable on day one. And what that also means is making sure that the policies that were promised to our community is being implemented uh, and that our community do feel like they are a part of the social fabric of this nation. Michigan is one of the states that Democrats lost by just over 10,000 votes in the 2016 presidential election. It has the highest concentration of Muslims in the country. But Michigan also has more than 87,000 registered LGBTQ voters. So if a majority of these two electorates vote, they can affect the outcome of the 2020 election. My name is Sarah Kate Ellis. I am the president and CEO of GLAAD, which is the world's leading advocacy organization for the LGBTQ community. According to a recent poll done by GLAAD, 88% of LGBTQ respondents are registered to vote, which means their vote could be a deciding factor in this election. You have said that the LGBTQ community can't afford to be complacent during this election. What did you mean by that and why? Well, in 2018, we saw the exit polls from the midterm election showcase 6% of the electoral was LGBTQ. And because 2016 was such a close race, we make all the difference in the world, in a world where we're losing our rights here in the United States. GLAD has been monitoring the current administration and laws that have threatened the LGBTQ community through a program called the Trump Accountability Project. We saw on day one of this administration that LGBTQ people were being erased. Literally, the moniker LGBTQ was being erased from the White House government websites. And in nearly four years, there's been 175 attacks on our community um, by this current administration. And it's playing out daily. Even with this new Supreme Court nominee, you're seeing that she has an anti-LGBTQ record. Let's talk numbers. I know that GLAD just released a new poll on the electorate. This is one finding that pops out. 81% of likely LGBTQ voters are more motivated to vote in 2020. What else can you tell me about it? So the community is really looking for people who are pro-equality, who are anti-racist, pro-women. Our community represents everyone. We are immigrants. We are people of color. We are women. We want autonomy over our own bodies. What we're seeing is that 76% of LGBTQ likely voters are supporting Biden at the presidential level, 17% supporting Donald Trump. GLAD isn't alone in its findings. The Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ advocacy group in the country, along with the data analytics firm Catalyst, 
have examined numbers that indicate millions of people could turn out to vote this election with the aim of protecting the rights of the community. They estimate 57 million people are equality voters, which means that they're supportive of LGBTQ rights and vote against candidates who do not support LGBTQ people. We estimate about 11 million voters are LGBTQ in 2020. So we've got a lot of voting power here. And what we want to see is to move this country forward and stop the reversals that we're seeing. My name is Russ Miller and I am a naturalized citizen of the United States. I'm originally from Russia and this will be my first time voting. While deciding on a candidate, my primary issue is who I see as the leader of the country, who I can trust, who I can basically rely on, who I can see the guidance from. And the person I have already voted by mail is Joe Biden. And for me being gay, I also think that the Democratic Party and the future President Joe Biden, I hope, will have our back, will fight for us, or at least will not stand in front of the decisions which have already been made. So we know that the threat of voter suppression is one of the big looming issues for this election, and the LGBTQ community is not immune from that because, as you mentioned, there are intersecting identities there. So what are some of the challenges that the community faces when it comes to being able to vote or voter suppression? So there are some unique ones for our community, especially within the trans community. With voter identification, there are trans folks in our community who are in situations where their requested identification that isn't necessarily updated as of yet. And so there are serious issues here that we are addressing with other organizations in coalition to make sure that every vote counts, make sure that everyone gets out there and that they feel comfortable getting out there and that they're not being intimidated and harassed. In fact, A study conducted by the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law estimates that over 965,000 transgender adults will be eligible to vote in the 2020 election. But more than 378,000 may face barriers to voting at the polls due to an incorrect name on the voter registration rolls or voter ID laws. My name is Chanel Haley. I vote in Georgia, and I am a Black trans woman. I am voting because there's too many people that have risked their lives for me to have opportunity to vote. There was a time when a Black person, a trans person, a woman could not vote, and to give that up is something that I'm not willing to do. As a transgender person, I personally am not um, afraid of voter suppression because I am extremely educated on voting process here in Georgia. But I I do worry about those trans individuals who are outside of Metro Atlanta, who is in more, more rural Georgia, because the biggest problem I think we have is that our actual poll workers are not educated on the trans community and they don't receive enough training I know that that there will be some um, disparaging um, things said 
and practices done towards trans people. So this November is not only about the president. The U.S. will vote for all 435 seats in the House of Representatives and 35 of the 100 seats in the Senate. How significant of an election can this be for a group like the LGBTQ community when it comes to the down-ballot voting? So the past three cases that we've seen in front of the Supreme Court all started at local level. One is about adoption by same-sex couples that is going to be heard on November 4th, the day after the election. The last one was employment law, whether or not LGBTQ people can be fired simply for being LGBTQ. Before that, it was whether or not LGBTQ people can be denied services, specifically if a baker didn't want to make us a cake. And so what I always say is like, not only are our rights on the ballot, but our dignity is on the ballot. Can you imagine my wife and I explaining to our children why somebody wouldn't want to serve us cake? And we also know through the Victory Fund, if you vote for an LGBTQ candidate, you will vote pro-equality up and down the ballot. And so it has real ramifications who you're voting for at your local level, because it will guide who you vote for at the national level as well. Election Day. What is that going to look like for you? I think anyone who is an activist and does it every day is also very much an optimist. And so I am going to be approaching Election Day with tremendous optimism. And, you know, here in the United States, we've never seen this kind of questioning of the integrity of our election or the questioning of whether or not there's going to be a peaceful handover of power. And so that, I think, has Americans, North Americans in general, very, very nervous. But I believe deeply in Americans. I believe that we want peace that we believe in equality. And so I think we'll see people show up in record numbers to have their voice heard on all those issues. The question of a smooth transition has come up recently after President Trump refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election. We brought it up to someone who has the ear of the president. I think the president's supporters would be very disappointed, but if it's a fair election, I think they will accept it. I'm Dr. Robert Jeffress, and I'm senior pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Pastor Jeffress is a well-known member of the Southern Baptist Evangelical Church in the United States. He's often seen on television, not only on the broadcasts of his ministry, Pathway to Victory, all over the world. From the historic pulpit of First Baptist Church in downtown Dallas, this is Pathway to Victory. This choir and orchestra have been fantastic. Man, they have been so great. But also on Fox News. Joining me now, Pastor Robert Jeffress. What do you make of these allegations? Well, it's absolutely ludicrous. In the United States, over 25% of adults identify as evangelical Protestants or Christians. That's according to data from the Pew Research Center. Another survey conducted this past summer by Pew looks into white evangelicals and says that 72% of them approve of President Trump's handling of his job. 
We asked Pastor Jeffress why President Trump resonates with so many in the evangelical community. The president's connection with evangelicals has nothing to do with his personal piety, but it has everything to do with his public policies. And that's probably the thing that non-evangelicals don't understand. President Trump ran in 2016 with a promise uh, to confirm conservative justices, to be a pro-life president, to be a pro-Israel president. He ran on things that evangelicals were sympathetic with, and uh, they voted for him with the hope and a prayer that he would accomplish those things. And now as we look back, we see he has uh, confirmed what will be uh, three Supreme Court justices who are all conservative and more than 200 federal judges at the appellate level where most cases are heard. It's actually 179, still not a small number. Pastor Jeffress has a direct connection to President Trump. He's part of the Evangelical Advisory Board and White House Faith Initiative, where he advises the president. He tells this story often. You know, he said, I saw Pastor Jeffress on TV and I said to Melania, who the hell is this guy? I want to get to know him. And so he reached out to me and I came up to Trump Tower to meet with him and we became friends right away. We asked Pastor Jeffress his opinion on the key issues that determine how evangelicals vote. I think issues like the freedom of religious expression, certainly the sanctity of life, Those are all uh, important issues, but they flow out of a bigger issue, and that is the judiciary of our nation. If you look back over the last 60 to 70 years of American life, most of the things evangelicals have been upset about, whether it's the removal of prayer from the schools in 1962, Engel versus Vitale, or whether it's the removal of Bible reading from the schools in 1963, all of that came out of liberal justices who were interpreting the law, the judges pulled out of the air some imaginary right for people to be free from being offended by the religious expressions of others, or some freedom to be able to murder unborn children. And that's why I still think in 2020, the single issue that most resonates with thinking evangelicals is the promise to continue to appoint conservative judges and justices to our courts. While judges and certainly the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court are understood to be impartial, decisions made by the courts are often seen as politically motivated. But religion is not the only issue evangelicals vote on. My name is Melody Bowers, and I'm from North Carolina. I will be voting again for President Donald Trump because I believe that he has worked very hard to create deals for the American people. These deals have increased American business and decreased the unemployment rate. As a Christian, I believe that Donald Trump has the same values that I do regarding abortion laws. I believe that at conception, a child is a human and they need someone to protect them. Back in 2018, the National Association of Evangelicals asked its leadership 
if evangelicals in the U.S. should be identified with the person and policies of President Trump. 83% of those questioned said no. We asked Pastor Jeffress about it. Well, I think what the survey is saying is that the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ is much larger than any singular political figure or party. And I agree with that. In fact, I'm not a Republican. I don't agree with the Republican Party on some key issues, including their position on health care. I think this idiotic move to try to dismantle Obamacare without having uh, a replacement policy to ensure health care for Americans is not only bad politics, it's bad policy. I don't want to be identified as a Republican. I want to be identified as a follower and preacher of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean we ought to be in a bunker somewhere and not involved in politics. And so while I think Christians ought to be involved in politics, I don't think that's where their identity comes from. In a recent statement, Pastor Jeffress said that only evangelicals who have, quote, sold their souls to the devil will vote for Joe Biden, unquote. So we wanted to know what he thinks about the Democratic candidate. Look, I think Joe Biden is personally a good man, a moral man who has certainly served his country, and I have no personal animus toward Joe Biden whatsoever. But the fact is, as the Democrat nominee, he is obligated to accept the platform of the Democrat Party, which is the same thing as the platform of Planned Parenthood that murders hundreds of thousands of unborn children every year. Planned Parenthood would dispute that. They're a nonprofit that provides sexual and reproductive health services. And that is why I'm against Joe Biden. And yes, that was hyperbolic language about selling your soul to the devil. But I think what is not hyperbolic is to say that in standing on the platform of Planned Parenthood, that means abortion at any time in the term of a mother's pregnancy for any reason whatsoever, including you don't like the gender of your baby, to most Americans, that's not only wrong, it's barbaric. Clearly, abortion is a divisive topic, but not the only one in this election. We asked Pastor Jeffress what election night might look like. President Trump has said that he believes the election result could end up in the Supreme Court, and he's cast doubts around the legitimacy of the process. I think the president is doing the right thing in saying that He will abide by the decision of the electorate if it's a fair election. But he should not automatically say, oh, I am going to accept the results that come out on November the 3rd, 4th, or 5th, and absolutely abstain from any litigation in the election if unfair practices have occurred. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez and Dina Kispe with Nagin Oliai, Oni Wohacha, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to this episode's description. You'll find extra information about the topic and our social media handles. We're at AJ The Take. For more, just go to aljazeera.com slash the take. We'll be back.